0: This season's case is about a bunch of cases, and they are all attributed to one man. This is a double homicide, but it's also multiple assaults with a deadly weapon, all of which occurred after he broke out of jail the first time. He actually escaped jail twice. But all of that occurred after the vicious rape of a young Catholic schoolgirl, which was the offense that landed him in jail in the first place.
1: I didn't even feel like, I. even now to this day, I still don't have the the adequate language required to effectively describe what occurs to you in that moment in time. During sentencing last week, Justice Dewar said, two women, one dressed in a tube top, both of whom were made up and wore high heels, made their intentions publicly known that they wanted to party. He said the victim gave out signals that sex was in the air. First of all, she waited four months before reporting this alleged brutal rape. Bob Jones staff members have responded to allegations of rape by telling rape victims they should repent for their sins. A Missoula, Montana defense attorney referred to a 13-year-old victim of sexual assault as a temptress he suggested the victim was partly to blame because of what she was wearing dr stephen trattenburg said that women should simply drink less alcohol if they don't want to be raped he said women need to be trained not to drink in excess so they can punch guys in the nose if they misbehave she is leaving her home at 1 a.m in the morning and and nobody forced her to drink what did she expect to happen at 1 a.m in the morning after sneaking out i'm not saying that she deserved to be raped but
0: Peter Piper. You haven't heard of him, have you? I'm guessing that you, like I, would remember a career criminal who shared a name with the subject of a childhood tongue-twister nursery rhyme. That Peter Piper, by the way, was actually a French pirate and horticulturalist in the 1700s. He raided spice stores so that he could plant the seeds in his garden in the Seychelles, hoping to make spices more affordable and available to the average European. Kind of a Robin Hood of the spice world. But what does all that have to do with Peter Piper picking a peck of pickled peppers? Well, the practice of pickling was used by companies involved in the spice trade. They would rub the seeds with lime before shipment to keep them from germinating if they were planted, and this was to keep supply on the ground low while ensuring more business for them. And the term pepper, well, that was applied to any spice nut. Anyway, the earliest version of the tongue twister that we all know today was published in a book called Peter Piper's Practical Principles of Plain and Perfect Pronunciation. It was written by John Harris in 1813, and it includes a tongue twister for each letter of the alphabet.
1: Captain Crackskull cracked a catchpole's coxcomb. Did Captain Crackskull crack a catchpole's coxcomb? If Captain Crackskull cracked a catchpole's coxcomb, where's the catchpole's coxcomb Captain Crackskull cracked? Kimbo Campbell kicked his kinsman's kettle. Did Kimbo Campbell kick his kinsman's kettle? If Kimbo Kimbo Campbell Campbell kicked his kinsman's Kinsman's kettle, where's the kinsman's kettle Kimbo Campbell kicked? Francis Fribble figured on a Frenchman's filly. Did Francis Fribble figure on a Frenchman's filly? If Francis Fribble figured on a Frenchman's filly, where's the Frenchman's filly Francis Fribble figured on?
0: Apparently, only P rose to popular distinction. But our Peter Piper, for the purposes of this case study, had none of the whimsy of a spice pirate. No, our Peter Piper was a vicious rapist and liar who would not have had the chance to rape any more women or kill a newlywed couple if his life sentence had been treated as it should have been. Instead, his jailers gave him free reign of the place, and that included the keys. From a December 1988 article titled Double Killer Gets 25 to 40 Years, Judge Lawrence Root says the reservations about accepting a plea bargain for Peter Piper in the slayings of a young Manton couple were outweighed by just one factor. I feel quite confident that he will spend the rest of his life in prison. The 25 to 40 year sentence was for the murders of Richard and Alita Thompson. These slayings were committed a year after Peter Piper escaped in 1983 from a Lake County jail where the state prison system had moved him to relieve prison overcrowding. He was recaptured in 1985, and during that time, he robbed and assaulted multiple prostitutes. And then later, while finally awaiting a court appearance for the murders, he escaped again, this time from the Osceola County Jail in Reed City. Fortunately, that time he was recaptured before he could kill again. There is certainly a lot to peel back here in this case. So we are going to start with putting a fine point on the vicious rapist and compulsive liar part, since that is what put him in jail in the first place. To do that, we have to travel back in time to March 10th, 1966.
1: Presents this program in color. My three sons, starring Fred MacMurray. This is the fifth season for this excellent show. Not bad when you consider the war itself only ran for four. Right right way, a 66 Oldsmobile, a supercharged engine in front, another engine in the back, a driver strapped in between. It rockets off the starting line, smoking all four wheels. Could you get that, Robin? I'm busy solving a crime. Batcave, Robin speaking. Hello, boys and girls. I have a special message for you from the President of the United States. You've impressed me pretty much a time or two and you said, Well, we're down to four percent, but I want you to know, Mr. President, every morning there's so many jobs to be filled, whatever number it is. How many jobs open each day, huh? Eight hundred, ten thousand. All right. Yep. Every morning when I get up to coffee, there's ten thousand men got to be placed. say, Now sure this is a goal works has been working toward kennedy worked toward johnson worked toward. congress worked toward our goal is full employment and that's the law of the land we're not uh, backing away from it well what our enemies are going to do they're going to take the position that we always got to have about a five to ten percent uh, unemployment that's not going to hurt anybody and that's kind of good for you and you can get labor easier and uh, you won't have any trouble with your maids you don't have to pay them too much, and everything's all right. And now, for the first time in color, the 38th Academy Award! Sitting out there are the stars of today and the senators of tomorrow. <laughs> I know that George Hamilton is here with a beautifully feathered friend. <coughs> Johnson. I think that's wonderful. And if he plays his cards right, he may be the second Hamilton in the White House. Strange days <laughs> indeed. This is Doug Layton and Tommy Charles. We're reminding you that our fantastic Beatles boycott is still in effect. We have not forgotten what the Beatles said. The Beatles made a statement in all the newspapers that they're getting more better than... Uh, jesus himself well originally i was i was pointing out that fact in reference to england that we meant more to kids than jesus did or religion at that time i wasn't knocking it or putting it down i was just saying it
0: At 7.45 in the morning on March 10th, 1966. Two men walking near the Bestwall Gypsum Company in Grand Rapids saw a woman stumble from a wooded area near a paved road, waving her arms and trying to yell to them. We're going to call her Mary for the purposes of maintaining her privacy. To get a sense of how surreal the scene must have been, I want to describe the area. Bestwall Gypsum was a company that developed a decorative vinyl-surfaced wallboard made of gypsum and touted it as having extreme durability. Gypsum is hydrated calcium sulfate. It was first discovered in West Michigan in the late 1820s near Plaster Creek. The company itself sat on a huge expanse of land west of where the Gerald R. Ford Parkway is now. Technically it sits within the city of Walker to the north, but basically it's sandwiched between Walker and Wyoming, Michigan, which is to itself in Grand Rapids. The area is partially wooded and dotted with sand pits, which rest above an old mining area that dates back to the 1800s, a circumference of 40 or so miles, made up of about six miles of underground tunnels that cross between Walker and Wyoming and stretch down to Granville. Once upon a time, gypsum was mined here dynamite was used to blast it loose and then it would be hauled to the surface via the underground mine shafts which explains why on the diagram in the Walker police report there are two dynamite sheds shown near the scene of the crime the assault itself occurred on a dirt two-track road well off the main paved road which is called Butterworth after R.E. Butterworth who opened the first gypsum mines north of the Grand River obviously the men were horrified by what they saw that day Mary was beaten so badly both of her eyes were swollen shut her face was badly cut and bleeding and she had teeth missing when they came upon her the poor girl was covered in blood and only wearing one shoe The crime scene photos, they paint a stark image. On either side of the dirt road stood barren trees that hadn't yet filled with spring's promise of leaves. It's still cold, and you can tell that because the officers in their crisp uniforms are wearing wool coats as they kneel to measure the length of road from a spot in one of the tracks to a large rock that they would use for their baseline measurements. One officer takes photos with the type of camera that most of us associate with those old-time reporters who are hot on the trail of a story to fit into those old true crime or celebrity gossip magazines, the kind with the attachable flashbulb that goes pop when an image is captured. Further into the wooded area next to the two-track road, school books and papers are carelessly strewn aside, and appear to be weathering a gentle breeze. A few pages are slightly uplifted, arcing in the wind. Some bear smudges of what looked to be blood. And there's a purse that lays atop the pile, next to what looks like a fashion magazine of the day. I don't know if she saw any of that, or even realized where her belongings were when Mary regained consciousness. She got up out of the dirt and started walking back from the direction she remembered they had come, not realizing that she was wearing only one shoe until she got a little ways down the road. The men helped her to the company office where she recalled sitting down on the floor. The men got her into a chair, and when the officer arrived and asked her if she had been raped, she said yes. Because of the extent of her injuries, it was difficult for the men to understand her. So she motioned in the air with a finger and drew the letter P, she said Peter Piper. The sergeant radioed a team to proceed to the home of Peter Piper, while the other officers headed to the area from which the men had seen the young girl emerge to ascertain the exact location of the crime and immediately secure it. What they would find was her blood on the ground The school books and papers strewn aside, as I mentioned. They found her other shoe, a loafer, a broken charm bracelet, and a scarf, as well as two of her teeth lying feet apart in the dirt, as if she had shed those items as she stumbled to safety. They also found her shoe prints, along with a heavy boot print, and tire tracks, all of which would later be photographed, and plaster casts made for evidence. Later that day, when describing the incident, the inspector of detectives, a Mr. Walter A. Gilbert, would say, It is the worst thing I have ever seen. Two Grand Rapids police officers went to the residence of Peter Piper's sister, and she told them where he worked. She also confirmed that he drove a 1950 white-over-green Chevrolet. Piper lived upstairs at the same property, while the downstairs was occupied by his brother. They were told that Piper left for work that morning around 7.15. Meanwhile, Mary was being questioned at the hospital in the presence of her mother by Vice Squad Captain Francis Pierce. By this time, police had delivered the teeth they had found on scene because the staff at the emergency room suggested they might be useful in repairing the girl's mouth. The vice-captain learned that Mary had four puncture wounds to her abdomen and three to her neck, which they believed to have been made by a small pocket knife. She also sustained a severe beating to the face with a blunt object, and it was confirmed that there was evidence of rape. It was here that Mary first relayed her story. What school do you attend? Catholic High School. What grade are you in? I'm a junior in the 11th grade. How old are you? Seventeen. How were you getting to school that day? By the city bus. Where do you catch the bus? At the corner of Hugard and Granville. Did you go to that corner that morning? Yes, I did. At what time? I must have left the house at ten after seven, I think. The bus comes at quarter after. What were you wearing when you went to school? My school uniform. What kind of uniform is that? A white blouse with a navy blue jumper, knee hose, my mohair sweater, and my car coat. Did you have any books with you? Yes, I I had a notebook and a few textbooks, but I'm not sure which ones. It might have been a religion book and possibly English or maybe biology, but I'm not certain at all. Did you have any jewelry on? Yes, I had my watch and a ring on, but I'm not certain whether I had my bracelet on or not. Sometimes I do and sometimes not. Sometimes I I put it in my purse. What happened at the corner? I was waiting for the bus and a boy that I knew drove by and he Went around the block a bit. Did he stop? Yes, he stopped. What did he ask you? He asked me if I needed a ride to school. What did you say? Uh, I looked down the street and the bus wasn't coming. And I told him I would. I decided to save my bus fare. Did you get into the car? Yes, uh, I walked over to the car and I was thinking, I hadn't I hadn't talked to him for a long time and I was wondering how come. I, I said hi to him and he said hello. He offered me a ride. What was his name? Peter Piper. How did you know Peter Piper? About two winters ago, I was going around with this boy and we used to double a lot. I knew him before when I went ice skating. Sometimes he would walk home with me. When was the last time you saw this boy before Thursday? I saw him on the Monday before. Where? Downtown. Where downtown? Right where I catch my bus. Is this a different bus than you take from your home? Yes, this is the one that takes me from downtown to school. Did you have any conversation with him at that time? Yes, he asked me if I wanted a ride. What did you say then? Uh, I had already paid my bus fare, so I told him no. What did he say he didn't He didn't say anything. Did you see him between Monday and Thursday? Yeah, yes, I saw him Wednesday riding around town at what time? I'd say about seven twenty or seven twenty five Did you talk to him at that time? No. Did he see you downtown at that time? Yes, he stopped right in front of the bus. He stopped to let me cross the street. What kind of car did he have this Thursday? It would be an older Chevy. I don't exactly know the year. It was dark green on the bottom and it had a white top. Now, referring to this Thursday, when you got in the car... What conversation did you have when you got in the car? Well, when he asked me to ride Monday, I thought maybe it was because he had some family trouble and he wanted to talk about it. When I got in the car Thursday, I asked him about his wife and I thought maybe that was why he wanted to pick me up. I asked how he was and he said fine. I asked him if they had children and he said no. And I asked him where he lived. From where did you start driving? The downtown area, toward downtown. From what street? Granville Avenue. How far on Granville Avenue did he go? As far as Pleasant Street. Then where did you go? There was a train coming and he turned up Pleasant thinking he could get ahead of the train. How far did he go on this street? As far as Oakland and then he, on Oakland he. He had to wait for the train again. What conversation did you have? We we just talked about his wife, whether she was working and where they lived. Were there any other topics of conversation? He asked if I was going with anyone. What did you say? I told him no. Where were you driving then? asked me if I had to be at school right away, and I, I said no, and he said he had to visit a boyfriend. When we didn't go directly to school, uh, I thought we were going to the boyfriend's house. Was this before or after the train? Just before. After the train passed, where did you go? He went as far as wealthy. I think it was wealthy. I'm not sure. There was a bridge, and he crossed the bridge right, right where all the streets crisscross. By the gas company or whatever that is. Then where did he go? He turned right down the first street past the river. What street was this, do you know? No, I don't know. Then where did he go? Uh, I wasn't paying attention after that. What direction were you going? Hmm. To me it was toward my grandmother's house, but to you I guess it would be toward John Ball Park. Then where did he go? We passed John Ball Park and he he started going up the paved road past the Coca-Cola Company, the road that goes to Johnson Park. Where did you go after that? Well, we we passed the two factories. Then there was a sign. Right Right before the sign, he made a turn down a dirt road. What kind of sign was this? It was a yellow sign pointing out that there was a curve ahead. Do you know what street you were on? No, I I could guess that it was Johnson Park Road. Johnson Park or John Ballpark? Johnson. It was right about in the middle because Johnson Park is out near 28th Street and John Ballpark is in the city. Did you go right or left on the dirt road? Right. Were there any other landmarks as you approached this road? There, There was a factory just before the road. Six or seven car lengths before the road and on the other side of the factory. Do you know what kind of factory it was? I thought it was a plaster company, but I don't know for sure. What was your conversation? Nothing. Nobody said anything. I was just going along for the ride and he was going to his boyfriend's house. There was nothing to talk about. Would you describe the way he was driving at this time? He was driving fast, like he was in a hurry to get to his boyfriend's, but I thought it was because I told him I I wanted to get to school. How fast was he going on this road? Quite fast, I don't know, I would say quite fast. How fast did he drive in town? To me it was fast for being in town. Now, when you went on the dirt road, where did you go? Well, we went a few car lengths, and then I remember a little shack or a shanty, and I I remember the road fort. I don't know whether it was before or after the shack or not. Was the shack on the right or the left? It was on the left. How far from the intersection was the shack? It was quite a ways, but still, it wasn't real far. Was it a mile to the shack? No. Half a mile? Less than half a mile? I don't know. A few hundred feet, maybe? What happened when you got to the fork in the road? At the time, I thought we had turned down the drive going to his boyfriend's house. When I saw the fork, I realized it was just a road, and I talked to him again. What did you say? I looked at him, and he was driving fast, and I told him I didn't believe him. I said... I don't believe you. What did he say? He said, you don't. What did you say to that? I didn't say anything. What did he do? There there was a hill he had to get up. It was quite steep and after he got over the hill there, there was quite a little slope and he stopped and he turned off the key and he Sat there for a few minutes, just looking ahead, and he turned to me and he said, Give or walk. What did you say to that? I told him I would walk. Did you say that right away? Yes, I did. Do you know what he meant when he said give or walk? At times it was just a joke between the kids, but he meant either... Let him have intercourse or else walk the distance home. What did he say to you after that? Just kept yelling at me. Are you going to give? Are you going to give? I took hold of the door and the door went open and I was telling him, I'll walk. I'll walk. What was he doing? He was trying to hold me and at the same time he was trying with his hands to pull down my pants. Did he kiss you at this time? Did he get your pants down or not? Not not right away, but he started working them down. I, I heard some ripping. Was he doing this with both of his hands? No, just one. He was trying to hold me down because I was fighting him. How was he holding you down? By my throat. He was holding my throat. What hand was on your throat, his left or right? His right. Was it his hand or his arm? was his hand then after you said these times that you would walk what happened then i realized that he had no intention of giving me the choice really he wanted to do something to me and i was i was fighting him how are you fighting him i was trying to push him away from me and the door was open on my side and i was trying to get out did you try to get out the door i couldn't push him away were you screaming? Yes. I was yelling that I, I'd walk, but he wouldn't let me go. I remember something else, too. I think that... I'm not sure, but I, I think that when he was holding me back and fighting me, I... I said something about if he just let me walk, I won't tell anybody. I, I'm not sure, but I I, I might have said that let me alone and I won't say anything. Where were your hands when you tried to push him away? On his shoulders. Were your hands on his head or his face? No, I never scratched him or anything. What was he wearing at this time? I, his boots. They were they were green and yellow. He was wearing green and yellow boots. What kind of clothes did he have on? Uh, I, I never bothered to look. What was he doing with his clothes at this time? Nothing. He was just trying to work on my pants and pull them down. Your underpants? Yes. Then what happened? He finally put both hands around my throat. I was still screaming he said, Are you going to give? Are you going to give? I was real scared and I I finally, I, I said I would and he let go and I, I fell back a little bit. Then what did you do? Uh, I fell back on the seat and he pulled down my pants and started pulling down his. Did he have a belt on? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Did he pull his pants off? No. No, just down. After he pulled his pants down, what did he do? Then I knew it was serious, and then I was sorry that I had said okay, and I I told him excuses. What excuses? I told him that I had to go to school, and and I, I, I told him that I had my period. What did he say when you told him you had to go to school? He said, no, you don't. What did he say when you told him that you had your period? <sighs> he, he pulled my legs apart to look and he said that I was lying. Then what did you say? He, he started to get on top of me and I was still screaming and, and I said something about, aren't you, aren't you going to use a rubber? And he told me he was sterile and that, and that, and that was why he didn't, he didn't have any children. Where were you lying in the car? My, my head was toward the steering wheel and my feet were um, were by the passenger door. On the seat? Yeah, yes, on the seat. After he looked at you and said that you were lying, what happened then? Oh, he got on top of me. What did he do when he got on top of you? He put his right hand, the, the arm part, just um, below the elbow against my throat. So I couldn't get up and... With his other hand, he was trying to have intercourse with me. Where was his left hand? But between my legs, he was trying to work himself into me. What do you mean by working himself into you? He, he was trying to put it in the hole. Can you just say what you mean? Uh, I mean, he. his sexual masculine parts. Was that his penis? Yes, I imagine it was. And do you know if his penis was hard or soft at the time? Oh, I don't really know. I haven't ever done anything like this. Do you know what I mean? I didn't put my hands down to feel. I was fighting him, and I didn't didn't know the difference. I uh, I really don't know what I mean either. Did he touch you with his penis? Yes, he had it part of the way in me. Where in you? In your own words Between my legs inside my my female sexual parts. How far would you say, in your opinion, did he have it in you? I I, I never had intercourse. It was painful and I was screaming and kicking. I don't I don't know how, how far. It was far enough to hurt any couldn't get it any further because I, w- I was tight. He tr- he was trying. It. it was small there, and he-, he couldn't get it any further, and it must not have been very far. Well, did he have it in you at all? Yes. I, I don't think there would be pain if it was just by my legs. He had it part way in me. Do you know what it means for a man to have a climax? Yes. Do you know if he had a climax at this time? I don't think so. I was fighting. He was trying to get himself in me. I it didn't it didn't last long. I screamed and I screamed and he just got mad and stopped. When you screamed, what were you saying? Just it was it was painful. I, I hadn't done anything like this before, and I I wanted him to stop. When when he stopped, he put both hands around my neck and he said, "Don't scream. Don't scream." And he was choking me. Then what happened? I got, he got off of me and I, I, I couldn't breathe and I, I couldn't fight him off. I, I I closed my eyes and I went limp and I pretended I had fainted. He, he choked a little longer and then he backed on his knees out of the door. Where did he have his hands on your throat? I, I don't know. Around my neck. Was he choking you, or did he just have his hands there? He was was choking me. After he let go, what happened then? I felt the air coming to me again, because it had been cut off and I wanted to be quiet, so he wouldn't know I was alive, and I, I looked a little to see where he was, and then he took hold of my ankles, and I felt myself being dragged out of the car. And then what did he do after he dragged you out of the car? Well, um, he was dragging me out of the car and I might have passed out because I don't i don't remember hitting the ground. But I i, I couldn't remember him letting go of my legs. I, I remember opening my eyes a little bit and I, I saw him digging around in the trunk. He, he was making a lot of noise. Then what happened? I just laid there to see what he was going to do. He, he came back by me and he sat right by me, right at my side. He was just leaning. I felt something go into my neck, something penetrating, like it was going in. And he said, are you dead? And then I felt it go out, and then he said it again, are you dead? And I felt it go in and out again, two more times. And and then I passed out. What's the next thing you remember? I remember I opened my eyes just a little, because if he was there, I didn't want him to know I was alive. So I stood up and I looked around for the car and I didn't see him and I didn't see the car. It was gone and I walked down the road. What did you notice was wrong? Uh, I I didn't have a shoe on and one of my eyes was closed. Did you feel any blood or see any blood at the time? No, I I didn't have a headache or anything. I, I felt real good. There was a little pain in my neck but I knew what caused it and that's all I felt. Where did you go? I walked down the road and down the gravel paved road and I I saw two men and and I yelled to them and they they looked, but they didn't come. So I called again and and one of them came and helped me and asked what had happened and I told him that I had had been attacked. Assuming that she was dead when he left the 17-year-old girl there, battered and lying in the dirt, well, that would prove to be Peter Piper's downfall. Over at the corner of Market and Cherry Streets, officers met with Piper at his place of employment and informed him that he fit the description of a person wanted for assault and rape. He was placed under arrest and advised of his rights. They had located his car, which matched their witness description, parked right outside. He repeatedly denied any knowledge of the assault. While they waited for the vice officer to arrive, the cops on scene say Piper twice requested that they let him wash his face and hands. He once even asked, Do you want me to change my clothes? When the vice captain arrived at the gas station where he worked, he was told that the subject had been made aware of his rights. He asked Piper flat out if he had the girl in his car that day, and Piper now was saying that he had, but that he had left her off at Cherry Street and Granville and then came to work. He told them that he had gotten there at about 7.45. The captain noted that he was wearing a green work uniform and he could see no stains resembling blood on his clothing. Later they would find stains on multiple items of his clothing, his thermal underwear, and the bottom of his pants, which is probably why he was keen on changing his clothing. Outside, officers took pictures of his Chevrolet and found some small links that they believed at the time to have come from a charm bracelet. They also took mud and dirt samples from various locations under the car before it was towed to the garage at the headquarters for further inspection. It was at this point that they learned that the crime scene itself was within the city limits, so the Grand Rapids vice captain ordered his officers to take Piper to the Walker Police Station for further questioning. Then he went to view the scene and evidence and make sure it was all collected and turned over to the Walker City Police Department. It's back at the Walker Police Station where we get our first glimpse at who Peter Piper really is. When the Walker Police Chief arrived to question the suspect, the Grand Rapids officers had already removed all of Piper's clothing and put them into containers for examination by the state lab in Lansing. Here, I would just like to give a shout-out to all these officers from different law enforcement entities who, in 1966, clearly understood the importance of immediately securing evidence and working together in a seamless, efficient manner. There was nobody jockeying for lead on the case. Everyone knew what to do, and they all worked together to serve up justice in the manner in which it's intended to be served. When Piper was escorted into the chief's office, he was offered a cup of coffee. Piper declined, but he asked for some aspirin. He said he had a terrible headache. He requested five tablets, insisting that anything less than that would not help. He was given four, which he took with a glass of water. No sooner had he taken them did he say that his headache was getting worse. Piper was then advised that he did not have to talk to the police chief if he would rather have an attorney, but he declined. Then... He was asked if there was someone he wanted to call, and Piper said he wanted to talk to his mother. He spoke to her on the phone for 22 minutes, according to the report, after which he was asked if he would like to talk about what happened. And he agreed. He said that he had left the house around 7.15 and was headed for work. He was driving down Granville Avenue and he saw a girl that he knew standing at the bus stop. He stopped and asked if she wanted a ride, and she said yes. She got in, and they proceeded down Granville Avenue. But at this point, Piper conveniently said that he couldn't remember anything else, and that his headache was getting much worse. The report notes that he appeared to be in severe pain, so the police chief asked him how long he had had this headache, and he said that he had been having them for about six years, around the time that he had an accident. He said that they had been getting worse for the past few months. The police chief asked him if during these headaches he had ever committed any acts or had any lapses in memory. Piper alleged that he did do things that he didn't remember doing, and often there was times that he could not account for. The police chief asked whether he had been seeing a doctor about these headaches, and Piper said yes, he had, Dr. Eugene Kramer. He told the chief that the doctor had even given him some pain pills for the headaches and they were at his mother's house. At this time, Piper said the headache was so bad and, the report notes, there were even tears in his eyes. The chief instructed Piper to go out into the squad room and have a seat while he called his doctor. Just a couple moments after he went into the other room, Peter Piper fell from his chair onto the floor and appeared to be unconscious. An ambulance was called to take him to the hospital. And it's noted that as this is happening, Piper's wife and two brothers are in the building and request that he be taken to Grand Rapids Hospital. Once Piper had left for the hospital, the police chief got on the horn with Dr. Kramer. It turns out there had been an accident, a fall that Piper took in June of 1961, five years earlier. He had been treated for several fractures, but no head injuries, and at no time had he ever mentioned headaches, nor had he ever been treated for headaches or ever prescribed medicine for headaches by this doctor. A short time later, a doctor from the Grand Rapids Hospital called to say they had done a spinal tap of Mr. Piper and they would have the results later, but so far they could find no cause for the headache or for him passing out while the doctors did their work up the chief and patrolman james vandermulen proceeded to the county prosecutor's office they presented their case and were granted a warrant for assault with intent to commit murder and assault with intent to commit rape by 5:45 that evening while they were at the prosecutor's office the doctor at the grand rapids hospital having completed his assessment of piper found the patient to be in good condition and they found no reason for the alleged headaches, so he was released back to the Walker Police Department. One of their officers had him back down to the county jail by 7.30 that evening, where the chief and the county judge were waiting. Bond was set at $10,000, and the date for arraignment was set for March 17th, one week later. It's clear from the report that the Walker police chief, he got Peter Piper's number pretty quick, Faking a headache and going unconscious is a pretty bold move for an 18 year old, though. But I guess if you've already stabbed someone in the neck, and the eye, and the face, and the stomach, what's a little trifle like faking an illness to stay out of jail? Peter Piper was a manipulator, right out of the gate. When you add a propensity for violence to that, what you get is a very scary combination. The victim gave a longer statement on March 23, 1966. Thirteen days later, she was still in Butterworth Hospital, healing from her injuries, and the interview was conducted at her bedside. I am amazed at the poise of this brave young woman. What I take away from this whole story is what she endured, and the strength with which she endured it. On June 1st, a few months after the attack, Mary went with her mother and patrolman Vandermulen for a drive of the exact route she had taken in the car that day with Peter Piper. He clocked his mileage from the corner bus stop where she was picked up to the exact location on the dirt road where she was assaulted. It was a mere 4.5 miles, but I cannot even fathom how she felt having to take that ride again. On that day, police also took samples of hair from her head to be compared to the ones that they found on the bloody tire iron in the trunk of Peter Piper's Chevrolet on the day of the assault. So not only had she been stabbed and raped, but she was also beaten unconscious with a tire iron. Today in 2018, the phrase that comes to my mind, nevertheless, she persisted. The report notes the items of evidence that were turned over and collected. They were gearing up for trial in a little over a week. Their contents jump out at me as I read them. Her purse, $13 consisting of two fives and three ones, a small brown paper sack containing a sandwich, three chocolate-covered graham crackers and a candy bar, a biology textbook, a magazine, and six notebooks. All things a 17-year-old girl on her way to school might have, and they seem so foreign on the pages of a police report. I imagine that they stood out on the table in front of the jury, too. All the evidence they found set against the backdrop of testimony they likely began hearing on day one of the trial, while the defendant sat at his table with his attorney, realizing that this was not going to end well for him. Two days into the trial, with Judge Vanderploeg officiating, the defendant abruptly entered a plea of guilty to the charge of assault with intent to commit rape and murder. He was sentenced to life in prison later his attorney would say each hour of the trial the prospects became worse and worse along with that mr piper became more and more dejected he covered his face with his hands he had his head down and i became convinced at the time that he was in fact guilty of something anyway up to that time i had been told that he was not guilty Years passed as they do. Seasons changed. So did the kind of music that played on the radio. For Mary, it was 18 years of suffering. From an article in the Detroit Free Press on January 8, 1984, written by staff writer Jack Kresniak. For 18 years, she has suffered. Besides the physical damage, stab wounds on her neck and a bashed-in face that had to be surgically reconstructed, her rape left her with emotional wounds that have never healed. Embarrassed, ashamed, and physically disfigured, she became an outcast to her high school classmates. She was never able to form a close relationship with a man. At age 34, she is alone. In those same 18 years, her attacker, Peter James Piper, has changed. An angry teenager, when he walked into the Michigan training unit at Ionia, Piper wasted his time, more or less, content to lose himself in prison. That is, until seven years ago, when he became eligible for parole from his life sentence. Realizing that his only chance for freedom was to show that he had been rehabilitated, Piper tried to improve himself. He joined group therapy programs and taught water safety classes. He became a model prisoner, a promising painter and a tradesman. He won trustee status and later used his new carpentry skills at three county jails to remodel offices for county prosecutors, sheriffs, and the courts. He even made children's furniture for Christmas gifts. Now, at age 35, he is free. But Peter Piper did not win parole. Even though some state parole board members, sheriff's officials, clergy, friends and family had sought his release. Peter Piper escaped. Stay tuned.